This is the Thursday, November 8th, 2012 edition of God and Culture. Conversations with today's influencers and critical thinkers on the issues of concern to evangelical Christians. Alexis de Tocqueville, writing in his book Democracy in America, said this, A democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves largé from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates promising the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that a democracy always collapses over loose fiscal policy, always followed by a dictatorship. The average age of the world's greatest civilizations has been 200 years. With the re-election of Barack Obama to a second term as the 44th President of the United States, are we witnessing the end of our democracy? Some think so, but that may be the extreme viewpoint. Many believe that Barack Obama's socialist tendencies may indeed lead to an economic collapse, to uh, unsustainable debt, and to a moral crisis uh, the likes of which our nation has never seen. For some post-election analysis and for some perspective on the proper role of government, we turn to Dr. Hunter Baker, who serves as Dean of Instruction and Associate Professor of Political Science at Union University. Dr. Baker is the co-founder of The City, a journal of Christian thought, and is senior editor of Renewing Minds, a journal published by Union, and also the author of the book The End of Secularism. I spoke with Dr. Baker earlier today. When you were watching this all unfold, did you go into it the way I did, Dr. Baker, with uh, the anticipation that Romney was going to pull this thing out? Uh, Well, my gut was always that uh, Obama was going to win a second term. I, in fact, I actually made a friendly wager with a friend in Houston to that effect some time ago. Uh, however, um, I will say this: I I paid a lot of attention when Michael Barone said that he thought Romney was going to win, uh, and a good friend of mine named Dan McLaughlin, uh, who studies statistics quite extensively. Uh, I began to think that maybe Romney would have a chance to pull it out. Um, but my gut was always that Obama was going to win. That was that was kind of my my fear, um, for reasons we can talk about. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> we're, we're definitely going to talk. About. Peggy Noonan also said that uh, that she felt like Romney was going to win, uh, and um, the the odd guy out on on that bet was Dan Rather. Dan Rather on Morning Joe, the morning of the election. <laughs> told uh, Mika Brzezinski and uh, and Joe Scarborough that this was going to be a good day for Romney, and his gut told him that Romney was going to win. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, Romney pretty much, he did what he needed to do in terms of the uh, the white vote. I mean, this is the, this is really the first election where I've heard people speak in such blunt racial categories, but there was a lot of talk about the, the white vote, and um, Romney, Romney hit 60%. Uh, on the white vote, uh, if if the electorate to this week had matched the electorate of uh, Ronald Reagan in the 80s, Romney would have had a blowout victory. Um, but the racial composition of the United States has changed. Uh, it has not become more African American, but it has certainly become more Hispanic and more Asian. Uh, in fact, one of the statistics that absolutely shocked me, um, I wasn't surprised to hear that Hispanics went about 75% for Obama. Um, even though they had been, they had supported George W. Bush much more fully, um, I was surprised to find out that Asians voted for Obama about 75 percent. 
in terms of cultural values and attitudes toward work and business, things like that, I would have expected Asians to uh, lean more Republican than that. Uh, so basically, you know, Romney did what he had to do with white voters, but he didn't close the deal with anybody else. From your political science perspective, Dr. Baker, what does this say about the Republican Party in terms of its connection with the the new makeup, the new demographic uh, of America? Is, is the Republican Party out of touch because of its uh, position uh, or lack thereof on immigration reform and so forth? Has it alienated, for lack of a better way of characterizing it, foreigners and aliens, people who we don't think of as uh, you know, the traditional white uh, male American, uh, has the Republican Party failed to, to, bring those, uh, to bring those constituencies into the fold? Well, they absolutely have. Um, <clears throat> in fact, one of the things that strikes, stands out to me most is that up until the 1990s, um, California was a reasonably conservative state. You know, certainly California would, would elect the occasional conservative Ronald Reagan had come from there, but also Pete Wilson had served a couple of terms there. They they occasionally would have Republican senators, um, <clears throat> and then there was a uh, a referendum on illegal immigration uh, back in the mid to late 90s. And I remember that Jack Kemp and William Bennett both were strongly against it. They both thought the Republican Party was going to really hurt itself supporting that referendum. Uh, and we've seen what's happened in California since then. The Republicans are a non-factor in California. You know, sure, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was elected, but that wasn't Republicans getting elected. That was Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, they they have they have been able to do nothing in California, despite the fact that Democrats have destroyed that state. I mean, uh, you know, I know some Californians who are just incredibly bitter about the terrible condition of California, but it doesn't matter. Uh, Republicans are, are in nowhere land there. And um, <clears throat> regrettably, the uh, <clears throat> the Republicans seem to have taken a near mortal blow on the immigration issue at the national level as well. Uh, because, you know, honestly, Romney ran a very good campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, you know, he did he did take some some strong stands on immigration and uh, appears to have taken quite a hit there. And now I have to say, uh, for Christians, <clears throat> this is a complicated issue because, on the one hand, uh, Christians are not about nations. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, you know, we, we there's a much more universal appeal to Christianity. I mean, our allegiance is to Christ and the kingdom of Christ, not to uh, the kingdom of America. Right. Uh, <clears throat> so, you know, it's a little unseemly for us to be heavily focused on this immigration issue. However. At the same time, if you look at just the basic functions of a state, uh, one of those is to be able to control its own borders. And if a, if a nation or a state is unable to control its borders, then you begin to ask the question whether you even have a, a going concern as a state uh, or nation. And we have been unable to, uh, to control our own borders. So you know, to some degree, it's legitimate to be concerned about that. Um, but in terms of just the electoral effects and not the merits of the issue, uh, the Republicans seem to have been harmed by it. Dr. Hunter Baker, my guest, he serves as Dean of Instruction and Associate Professor of Political Science at Union University. He's co-founder of The City. 
And uh, that uh, excellent uh, publication is linked at our website at GodInCulture.com, and we uh, encourage you to uh, check out that Journal of Christian Thought. He's also senior editor of Renewing Minds, uh, which is a journal that's published by Union, and uh, the author of The End of Secularism. You've got another book that's out, though, right? That's right. Yeah, there's a... um uh been doing a series of short books with David Dockery and uh, kind of an editorial committee. And um, it's a series of short books kind of on the academic disciplines. And I did a book on political thought. It's called Political Thought, A Student's Guide. <clears throat> um, as usual, I lost the argument over title. My title was The Good Politics, but instead we went with the very exciting title, Political Thought, A Student's Guide. Uh, and... Um, Basically, I think that I think that anybody who listens would be interested in this book because I I try to talk about political thought in a very accessible way. I I actually open the book by talking about the way I was raised and contrasting it to the way my wife was raised and using family to help people understand uh, different schools of political thought. Um, you know, I also talk about the television show Lost. Um, the idea of people being trapped on an island in the state of nature and what kind of implications that has for government. Um, so all in all, it should be just about the easiest way to understand political thought that you could get out there. I, I want to get to uh, something you said earlier about the reasons why you, you would have preferred not to see President Obama reelected. But, but since you've touched on this book, Political Thought, let me, let me follow a couple of questions that, that have just popped into my head. You mentioned family. Yes. Um, everywhere that I go in the last two days, eating out and talking with people in church, families have been divided by this election. I, 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 nearly every family I've talked to uh, has had somebody that's, uh, that's had an opposing view in their family on, on how this election should have turned out. Thanksgiving this year is going to be interesting for a lot of, uh, a, a lot of families. <laughs> what, do, what do you say to, uh, to families who may, may have a, a different strain of political thought, two different strains, maybe three different strains of political thought uh, in, in their families for, for, for maintaining the, the priority and the unity of the family over politics? Well, <clears throat> I would say something that I, that I said in the book, which is that um, the basic unit – of political society is actually not the individual. Uh, the individual has no in, – in political society, the individual has no future by himself or herself uh, because that person dies and that's the end of the political society. Uh, the political society can only continue with the family, uh, the man, the woman producing the child uh, who then produces other children, and, and you uh, you grow out into – uh, families and then villages and then towns and cities and nation states. Um, so the family, Aristotle says this, is the basis of it. Uh, so I guess what I would say to people is you should see the family as, as prior uh, to the kind of system of politics we have. It's the bedrock, and it's actually the most important thing to keep together. As messy as politics is, and I mean you've made it a, a life's work uh, to, to, to dedicate your thought, your, your intellectual capacity, Dr. Baker, to, to – a pursuit of understanding politics, as messy as it is, as as dirty as it seems to get, particularly as we see political campaigns unfolding before our eyes in the 24/7 media. Should Christians be involved in this? I mean, how how can Christians redeem it? Uh, is it something now? 
that where we're going to watch the uh, you know uh, the I think it was Denny Burke uh, down at Voice who who uh, posted the day after the election. Look, the the Republican Party is going to have to compromise now on the issue of marriage, uh, the sanctity of marriage. They're going to have to probably compromise uh, on the issue of life. Um, how does the church then identify with uh, with a political party? Uh, that, that seems to to go against the grain of what the Word of God says on these important uh, life and and uh, and marriage and other moral issues. Well, <clears throat> we're going to have to. Uh, there are certain things that you can compromise on, and certain things that you absolutely cannot. Uh, I believe there's no compromise possible on the life issue. Uh, you know, my my challenge to people who have, who have kind of argued that way. Uh, especially Christians, <clears throat> has been to say, well, uh, let's imagine that there's a candidate uh, who you agree with almost everything they say, um, except that they're an ardent segregationist. Are you going to say, oh, well, it's just that one issue, just a little segregation issue? Mm. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna vote for him anyway. Uh, I would, I would argue that the life issue occupies that very same position, uh, that it cannot be compromised on. Um, uh, in fact, it's actually more compelling than the segregation issue because we're talking about life and death. Uh, so I think there's no compromise possible there. But I mean, honestly, happily, I would argue that you don't need to compromise on the life issue. I'm, I'm here on a college campus, and I can tell you that uh, when it comes to gay marriage, <clears throat> we we have basically lost that issue even with our own young people. Mm. Uh, our own young people on an evangelical college campus, <clears throat> large numbers of them uh, think that gay marriage should be all right. It doesn't mean that they approve it or that they view it as a positive good, um, but they think that it should be allowed. Where does that come from? Is that a failure of the church to properly instruct it in a, in a gospel-oriented kind of way? Is the failure of the home? Where, how is it we've got evangelical kids on on Christian college campuses now that uh, and, and by the way, I agree with you. I've talked to students yeah. at Cornerstone University up here in Grand Rapids who have the same mindset. They're personally opposed to gay marriage. They're they're opposed to the homosexual lifestyle for moral and religious reasons. But they don't want to deny their friend the right to uh, to engage in that activity if they want to. Where did we go yeah. wrong? Uh, well, there's a couple of things. I actually I think the root cause um, is the birth control pill. Uh, <laughs> Amazingly, the, the the birth control pill made it possible to stop seeing sex in the context of reproduction. Mm -hmm. uh, it effectively divorces sex from reproduction. So if uh, if sex loses its link to reproduction, then it becomes just kind of like a companionship activity. Uh, and people say, you know, people say, well, why why should I deny another person the opportunity for companionship? They no longer see sex as necessarily tied to reproduction, uh, and that sort of kills that that teleological objection. You know, what is the end of a mm. thing? What is its purpose? Right. Uh, people no longer look at as at a purpose for the sexual organs, other than pleasure. That's frightening on uh, on any number of levels, um, <clears throat> not the least of which is uh, moral, but certainly physical, and all of the. All of the health ramifications from that is uh, as obviously we've seen lived out in some in some other ways so back to the back to the original question, the messiness of politics does the church now retreat we We can't identify with party there's going to be compromise uh, on some issues we don't want to compromise on 
we talk about a two-kingdom ideology, a two-kingdom theology. We're members of, you know, our priority as Christians ought to be the kingdom of God. Uh, do we now just work within that realm of the kingdom of God and and try to pull people out of the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of God's son and forget about the political process? No, I, I, I don't believe we should pull out of the uh, political process. I mean, we do need to have urgency in terms of the, the church. There's no question about that. Uh, the church's cultural mission uh, and spiritual mission is paramount. Um, but I think that we do have to be involved in politics. I mean, uh, in the Bible, you could you could kind of take this attitude of, well, the rulers will do whatever they may. You know, God has put them in power. Uh, let them do what they will. But we don't live in that system. We live in a system where the sovereignty is not invested in some king. Uh, the sovereignty is invested in us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if we refuse to <clears throat> to use our portion of the sovereignty, then we're guilty of bad stewardship. Um, I think that I think that we have to engage in politics. Now, strategically, you know you have to ask questions of strategy. Um, you know, the ideal thing, and I, I think actually a culture in which people would grow strong and thrive would be um, a, sort of a Christianized public square. i I believe that. Uh, I would love to see that, but I'm not sure if that's possible right now. Um, I think that what may be more important right now is to prioritize freedom. We have to protect the freedom of the church. Uh, We need to protect the freedom of the church to express itself. We need to protect the freedom of the church to have its own standards. Uh, So for me, really, the compelling issue right now is religious liberty. And to tie this into uh, to gay marriage, the thing that terrifies me is not that gay marriage will become common, um, because you know I that 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 will sweep over us. Uh, you'll see a small number of gay people getting married. Um, I I you know I'm not sure that they will even see that much advantage in it, uh, and and I don't expect it to become kind of a huge feature of our culture. Um, the more lasting damage from that will be that if opposition to gay marriage becomes akin to something like white supremacy. Uh, and that's, that's the fear that I have. When I talk to students, I tell them, you know, I, I can understand where you're coming from on gay marriage. Uh, you know, I don't agree, but, but <clears throat> I want you to think about this. Your parents, churches, they're going to need to be protected from this view that they are like white supremacists or segregationists in their opposition to gay mm-hmm. marriage. And you need to have some solidarity with the church on this issue, and you need to protect religious liberty. That's going to be the next big battleground. We've already seen it with the HHS mandate mm-hmm. uh, on kind of what coverage has to be provided in insurance packages. With, with Barack Obama in office for a second term uh, and facing no additional elections, um, the damage that could be done with things like executive mandates and the tax code uh, could be pretty extensive. What you say, Dr. Baker, leads to the obvious question, how do we communicate to the electorate in in America today as evangelical Christians when they they have a perception of, of Catholic Christians and evangelical Christians and people of faith in general that we're ogres and we're outdated and we're out of touch and and we want to lead them into bondage. We don't want them to have liberty to do whatever it is they want to do. How do we communicate in gospel terms 
the truth of the liberty that's in Christ and the and the absolute freedom when 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 we when we find ourselves in obedience to him in obedience to the word of god how do we communicate that politically in a postmodern culture that's already made up their mind in a negative way about who we are as christians well i think that um i think that we have to emphasize uh the right of the church to be itself um i think that you know all the all the moral freight of imposing things is currently kind of being dropped on us. We're viewed as the ones who are trying to impose things. Right. Uh, we have to kind of turn the tables and make it clear that, that essentially we have not been imposing things. We have been fighting essentially a rear guard battle. Uh, at no point have we been kind of advancing some big agenda. We have actually been trying to protect uh, existing traditions uh, sort of long-held ideas, you know, we've not been out on some big campaign. Um, so we are not the, the aggressors in the culture war. That's something that's very poorly understood, <laughs> that Christians are not the aggressors uh, in this thing. Uh, that actually, you know, we have, we have just sort of tried to protect and preserve, um, and we just have to stand up for our right to have a different view. And if we, if we can kind of change that narrative... Uh, from that we're the we're the big ugly evil imposers to we are actually uh, people who uh, who have a right to believe what they believe and to teach what they believe in their own churches uh, then we can we can hopefully get somewhere we just we have to teach our young people about religious liberty uh, that's something I'm committed to doing and I I hope that that's something the church will pick up on in a big way, uh, emphasizing religious liberty. What are some of the things from a political science perspective that concern you about uh, the, uh, the the last four years uh, of an Obama presidency? <clears throat> well, the, I mean, the, first of all, the biggest issue is the one that I said, which is religious liberty. I'm, I'm terribly concerned that we'll see more things like the HHS mandate, but the, um, the other thing that bothers me is is uh, economics. Um, I think that the the president does not have a great grasp uh, on what helps an economy to grow. Um, I think that uh, that this is part of the reason. You know, typically in the past when we've had recessions, uh, we have been able to bounce back pretty quickly and have kind of these gaudy growth numbers. You know, big five percent, eight percent per quarter type recoveries uh, and that's not happening at all uh, we are sort of dragging along on the bottom with very slow growth rates these growth rates of one percent one point two percent two percent those would be fine if we were in an economy that that was in expansion and had already expanded you know significantly and caught up we're nowhere close really to kind of catching up to where we were in terms of things like employment and uh, you know Franklin Delano Roosevelt is looked at as a great hero for the way he dealt with the Great Depression, but I, I actually think the argument is correct that uh, his policies probably only prolonged uh, the Great Depression, that we would have recovered faster uh, with different policies. Now, I think we're in that same situation here. Is it is it too much to say, as I'm reading on Facebook and other places on Twitter, that this is the end of our democracy? You know that Alexis de Tocqueville quote is 
making the rounds that, you know, the, the average democracy only lasts uh, about 200 years. We're at 235, give or take. And so we're, we're beyond the stale date of our democracy. And now uh, socialism is at the doorstep. And with the reelection of Barack Obama, it's the end of democracy and a socialist state is sure to come and maybe even a dictatorship. Yeah, I think it's definitely too much to say. Um, the the first thing I would say about that is look at look at Europe. Um, <clears throat> now you know as far gone as Europe is in terms of uh, in terms of its socialistic policies, those people still turn around and elect center right governments from time to time. Uh, you know it's not a dead issue, kind of the direction they're going to go. Um, you know the English have elected kind of a center right coalition. Uh, I, I the 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 days of of conservatism having a significant say in American politics are far from over. Uh, basically, and if the economy continues to limp along throughout the entirety of the Obama term, uh, things will change. The other thing that we have to realize is is that Barack Obama <clears throat> is not an ordinary politician. He is to the left what Ronald Reagan was to the right. Um, you know, typically it's true that uh, with regular politicians, whoever kind of can capture the center wins. Um, but the but the fact is is that uh, that was not true of Ronald Reagan. It's not true of Barack Obama. These are guys who can sort of pick up that bell curve of American politics, put it on their back, and move it to the right or the left. Uh, once Barack Obama is gone, his magic will be gone. Uh, same thing is true of Ronald Reagan. Nobody on the right has been able to kind of recapture that magic in a bottle. It's it's not just about somebody's positions. Uh, that gives Americans too much credit for kind of thinking philosophically about these things. A lot of times they just become attached to a politician. They become attached to a personality, to a certain type of charisma, uh, and that's 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 the way it is with Barack Obama. A lot of people are just sort of caught up in kind of uh, who he is and and the dreams that he casts. Uh, but once he's gone, uh, the Democrats will be back in a, a, a very different situation, unless they can replicate Barack Obama. And, and Joe Biden is no Barack Obama. <laughs> That's exactly right. So as, as you look at Barack Obama and how he's governed over the last four years as president, from a political science perspective, Dr. Baker, what, what, where, is he, where is he going wrong in term, if he is – uh, in terms of what the fundamental purpose of government is, what is the fundamental purpose of government, and is he in line with that or not? <laughs> I, I, I think that uh, I'm sorry that I'm laughing because I, I think that I think that he's absolutely out of line with the fundamental purpose of government. Uh, I, you know, I, I wrote a piece for the Gospel Coalition recently, is uh, titled something like "When to Use the Hammer or How to Use the Hammer." Um, and it's about the fundamental purpose of government. And my argument is uh, is sort of uh, Luther's argument about government. You know, Luther looks at the uh, he looks at the Sermon on the Mount, and <clears throat> and Luther argues. You know, he goes against the old Catholic uh, statement on the Sermon on the Mount, which is, well, it's a it's a it's a counsel for the perfect. Uh, you know the people who are in religious life, the the monks and the nuns and the priests, they can they can keep the Sermon on the Mount, but nobody else can. And uh, what Luther says is, no, that's not true. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is for everybody. And so if you are attacked, you have to turn the other cheek. You know everybody has to do that. Uh, but it is it is in part for this reason that God has ordained the government. 
that God has ordained the government for the restraint of evil men. That is its purpose. It is to execute wrath on those who do evil. Uh, so fundamentally, uh, government is designed for the coercion and punishment of those who do wrong. That's what government should be about. When you look at the kind of programs that Barack Obama wants to roll out, that's not what those programs are about at all. Uh, they're programs about providing people with incomes and you know, and kind of uh, changing the way they live and removing the need to work and you know, kind of changing the cultural attitude uh, of the people. Uh, these are not the purposes to which government has been ordained. I think that government is basically designed to protect people from those who would do evil. And it's obvious that that even even under a George W. Bush administration, with compassionate conservatism, we 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 kind of broadened uh, outside of the scope of of that uh, of that limited definition that the government exists to punish wrongdoers and and protect those that are that are doing right. Uh, did this all happen with the New Deal, and and now we've just gotten used to our government giving us handouts? And uh, and is De Tocqueville right that once uh, the people learn that they can vote in politicians who will give them whatever they want from the public treasury, that uh, that the the next uh, the next step is a fiscal disaster, and and that's where we are because and and it dates all the way back to uh, to FDR and the New Deal. Well, it has uh, that is certainly what has brought us into the the state that we're in, um, Social Security and Medicare are the, the two biggest problems. Um, but yeah, we, we the federal government used to do very little. In fact, if you look at the U.S. Constitution and you look at the powers <clears throat> that the federal government is actually entrusted with, they are quite small. Um, for a long time in America, it was more prestigious to be uh, a significant person in the legislature of Virginia, say, uh, rather than the United States Congress. And that's because the states really had all the governing responsibility. Um, we have moved into this position where we view the federal government as this all-encompassing reality that is responsible for everything in our lives. Uh, and that's, that's, not really, that's not really the way our Constitution was, was constructed. Uh, that's not any anywhere close to kind of the founding understanding of what government is all about. Now, uh, this new way of looking at government has become very popular, uh, but it is an illusion and it is uh, it is unsustainable. The only way to have this kind of government that we've had is if you have a small number of old people and a very large number of young people. And those things are those things have gone in absolutely opposite direction. We have many, many more old people because of longer lives and better health care, and we have many fewer young people because people are having many fewer children. Mm -hmm. uh, so unless we all want to start having families of five, six, seven, eight kids, uh, we cannot afford the the current entitlement state. It is simply unsustainable, uh, but nobody wants to hear that. So as we bring this to a close, what's what's the message of hope for uh, Catholic Christians, evangelical Christians who are listening to us, Dr. Baker, uh, who are despondent, really, uh, many of them, over the outcome of the election, and they 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 look uh, with dread to the next uh, to the next four years. What what can what can we place our hope in from a political perspective? I know our hope is in God and that He is sovereign and uh, He's ultimately in control, but in a very practical way. 
Um, what, what can we do from a political science perspective as we anticipate the next four years to say, look, it's, it's, not, worth, uh, it's not worth moving to another country, and it's certainly not worth uh, downing the cyanide capsule? <laughs> well, the first thing is, is don't buy into the, the logic of you know, giving up and disengagement. Uh, the fact is, is that things change politically. They change fast. Uh, there was a time in this country where um, political conservatism was, uh, was almost gone as a movement, uh, almost completely suppressed. Um, and, you know, you, you saw it come roaring back with, with Ronald Reagan uh, in the 80s and then, of course, the 1994 uh, congressional revolution. Um, anytime you think that you're dead, uh, you're wrong. You can come back. Uh, good grief! Look at Notre Dame football this year. Uh, but the, <laughs> but so the fact is, it's never over. You know, George Shultz uh, served as different uh, different cabinet roles, and one thing he said that was distinctive about American politics is it's absolutely never over. Nothing is ever settled. Uh, the other thing is is that uh, Barack Obama has has had the personality and the ability to pull lots of people who support him to the polls. Uh, but when he's not on the ticket, the Democrats have gone down to electoral disaster. Uh, look at look at the midterms in 2010. Right. I ex- I expect to see the same thing in 2012. Uh, so he's not going to have a mandate. Uh, he's not going to have the power to do anything without compromise. Um, so it's not as if Barack Obama is just going to have his way the way he did uh, after 2008. That's not going to happen again. Um, so you know we're in. Although Mitt Romney lost, we're in very much kind of a stalemated position. Uh, so things are not as bad as as, uh, as we think. Is it safe to say we're status quo? I mean, nothing changed on November 6th that wasn't true on November 5th. Yeah, I think that's basically true. Um, the The only real difference is, is that the president is now completely insulated from the need to run again. Um, so the the possibilities for what he can do with the bureaucracy are a little bit worrisome, um, but you know we we have to hope that uh, I, I I'm very encouraged by the uh, by the Supreme Court's ruling in the Hosanna case uh, on religious liberty, and um, maybe they will intervene and do something good on this HHS mandate. If they do, I'll I'll start to feel really good about religious liberty again. Dr. Hunter Baker serves as Dean of Instruction and Associate Professor of Political Science at Union University. He is uh, the co-founder of The City, a journal of Christian thought, senior editor of Renewing Minds, and the author of The End of Secularism, all linked at togodandculture.com. And Hunter, I always appreciate your uh, perspective on these kinds of issues, and I hope that we'll be able to talk again. Thank you so much. This has been God and Culture. Tune in to the Friday podcast when we talk with Dr. Warren Throckmorton from Grove City College about the real Thomas Jefferson and how he got David Barton's book pulled from Zondervan. That's coming up on the next edition of God and Culture.